Hey everyone back again. Welcome to the John Locke's first treatise of government. Now obviously I'm going to follow this up with the second treatise of government because that's what everyone reads, but they never read the first treatise. So I'm gonna that's gonna be this episode, is the first on its own, just its own thing. And then next time I'm gonna take up the second treatise of government. But you should listen to this one, even if you're only really interested in the second treatise of government, because a lot of what he establishes here is super important. Now, before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. I explain philosophical concepts and ideas and ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new, you can subscribe if you're on YouTube and see videos I release every single week, sometimes twice a week, not every single week. Sometimes I miss it because I'm human uh, most weeks, sometimes twice a week. So subscribe, stay tuned to stay tuned, stay tuned. If you want to follow me, you can find me on any other uh, like podcasting platform like to listen if you found this on youtube or if you found this as a podcast you're going to be able to find it on youtube or sometimes there's videos that accompany my speaking and you can follow me on other things like instagram tiktok look in the description and you'll see links for all such things you can help me out by just liking sharing subscribing i mean that'd be great if you're listening to this in a podcast platform you can uh, leave a review good or bad i'd love to hear from you you can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but no pressure to do that. Take care of yourselves first. And yeah, let's talk about John Locke's first treatise of government. And it's, if anything, one of the reasons you should read this is how funny John Locke is. Like, John Locke is a funny dude. Because this whole treatise, the first one, is just a takedown of a guy named Robert Filmer. And Locke just lays them out. Locke just like, it just brings the fire, like just absolute brimstone, just lays out Robert Filmer in in, a, in very funny ways. Like it's just a very funny writer, which I wasn't expecting. But anyways, it, that should become clear. So here, like I said, we're covering the first treatise of government. And these were written in uh, the late 17th century, 1680s, uh, he, he was putting these together. So like many texts, we start with the preface. So an effort to celebrate, this is really an effort to celebrate King William III from 1689 to 1702, as he opposed monarchy and advocated for republic values. And that is what this entire thing is. The first and second treatise is John Locke opposing monarchy in favor of republican values which should become clear as we go through like what that what that looks like so to do this the first essay stages a critique so all he's doing is critiquing the work of sir robert filmer who believed in divine in the divine right of kings and that royalty earns their position by god's will so filmer we'll get into a lot more detail was like people are destined to be ruled like as per their nature, as per God's will, as per society. And Locke is like, no, people strive to breathe free and to live freely, not under rule, not under any kind of uh, like despotism or really any, any well, there, there needs to be some rule for Locke. Let's be, let's be real, but not uh, arbitrary monarchical rule. But Locke is so funny. Locke is like, this guy is not only unintelligent, he can't even string words together. He says stuff that like, 
we can only assume that this is what Filmer means and it takes like a very keen eye to be able to decipher any meaning in these words, but this is what we think he means. And it's just, it's very, it's very funny. Now, Robert Filmer, as I said, was a firm believer in the divine right of kings. And the divine right of kings justified not only that there need be kings who rule people, but that kings are allowed to essentially decide who gets to live and who gets to die. Kings can decide who, like, who is worth punishing and who is worth keeping alive. So everybody's life under a king's rule is not their own. They don't, their life is not their own. The king has, or the sovereign has any ability that they want, every ability to take away the people's lives. And here we get into the meat of the text here, or the entire treatise titled The False Principles and Foundations of Sir Robert Filmer and His Followers Are Detected and Overthrown. <laughs> so funny. Like, we have to do, we have to do more takedowns like this old white dudes begins so he begins by condemning slavery john locke begins by condemning slavery and filmer's faith in monarchs and power and that people are not born free now filmer believes that people like i said should are just always in a state of kind of enslavement just as sovereign rule and he justifies this by looking at the bible where filmer looks at the bible and he's like adam was the first king was the first king in all the world. How he makes this how he makes this point, I don't know. He Adam was the first one in the world, I guess, out of the Garden of Eden. So Adam was the first king for Filmer, and all subsequent royalty are his divine descendants, and are therefore ironically slaves to Adam as well. So there's Adam as the first king. Adam has kids. Those kids, according to Filmer, are descendants to Adam's power, and therefore these kids gained divine authority over everyone else. Now, there's this is kind of weird because the kids, Adam's kids, are then both Adam's subordinates, but also the rulers of the earth. How does that work? Well, he continues. He says that everybody is born into a father-ruled household and therefore, we are all programmed to be controlled. We all are just destined to submit to authority because we are born into households where there is a ruler that, like in the most, like in the cases he's describing, of a patriarch who rules the kids, and then the kids learn, as per the natural order, to submit to authority, to submit to power. Now, right off the bat, Locke doesn't buy any of this. But firstly, he's a little bit skeptical of what patriarchal power means or what fatherly power really is. As additional evidence, though, Filmer turns to the Bible and the legacy of kings within it. He also cites, honor thy father and thy mother. But interestingly, within Filmer's text, he leaves out and thy mother. He just leaves in the honor thy father bit. From the Bible. And Locke obviously doesn't like that. Locke is like, what are you talking about? What is this thing called patriarchal power? When kids are born, they better know not to not to talk back against their mothers, like, or else they're gonna get, you know, you know, you know, you don't do that. 
So what it, why is Filmer obsessed with fatherly power here? Like at least Locke is like, okay, dude, like if we're going to follow your idea that kids are born into uh, some amount of power, or I should say some amount of control, control by their parents, you have to acknowledge that mothers within the heterosexual dynamic have this power as well. Like they are, they are rulers as well. Why is Filmer denying this? And Locke is like kind of a, not really, or actually not at all, but he's kind of like a, a little bit of a proto-feminist being like, what about the women? Even though he'll come to say himself that men should really have power. But in any case, he's using it here to critique Filmer. So for Filmer, fathers and kings both stand above the law. So like fathers can determine what the rules are and they are not subject to the same rules as their children. So it's like, do as I say, not as I do. Same thing with kings. Kings can't stand uh, among their equals. Otherwise, you'd have pure chaos. In order for there to be order, you need somebody calling the shots who exists above everyone else who makes the rules. So in the face of this, Locke is like, but do children view their fathers as sovereigns and subjects like kings? Like, how do you how do you make sense of that? Because every single sovereign, every single king has a father. So are they subordinate to their fathers? And are the fathers of kings really the rulers of everybody? Or that like any regular person's father then has power over the sovereign? Like, Filmer is not clear about any of this or how this really works at all. Filmer just says, he just tells people to be like, oh, just to be okay with absolute power and to just accept enslavement, to accept subjugation. Now, the only real evidence he supplies is from the Bible, real evidence. He just looks to the Bible for this. Even though Adam's status as a king is not really justified, if anyone knows, like, Adam is not is not a king in the Bible. Being the first person is not that's not the same thing as being a king. In fact, for Locke, it's totally ironic because Adam was created by God, of course, as we know, his own father. So that Filmer argues that humans are only free if Adam didn't exist is then bizarre because Adam himself wasn't free. So we apparently for Filmer, because there was the original Adam, who was the first king, and everyone following Adam, every one of his kids became the royal descendants of his innate sovereign power that ruled the earth, apparently. We are not free because Adam existed. But that's ironic because Adam was created by something else. So how much power does Adam really have? Also, there was nobody else when Adam fell from the Garden of Eden. Like, there was Eve, but there was no one else. You can't be king of no one, I assume. I don't know, maybe you can. Tell me if you can. I assume you can't, though. Moreover, Locke says that Adam wasn't even a father uh, that we know of, so it shouldn't know how to be a king, at least according to Filmer's logic. Or let me explain. Of course, Adam had children. Don't want to lie to you like that, of course. Adam had Cain and Abel. And their other brother, Seth, had Seth. They were all his kids. The point is that in the Garden of Eden, 
Adam didn't have any children. And Filmer suggests that people learn about the rule of kings and the divine right of kings because the natural order of fathers and sons, where you have children and you rule over them, and then sovereigns like figure this out, and then they rule over subjects. So how can Adam be a king if Adam never had kids and never knew how to occupy this role? Adam only knew how to be a son, so how to be a subordinate, how to be subject to someone else's authority. And Filmer actually addresses this. Filmer is like, well, no, Adam wasn't a monarch or a king. in; He was only a king in habit and not in act, which is like, I don't know what kind of mental gymnastics that requires because doesn't, couldn't you say that of anybody? That I'm, I'm, I'm a king, I'm a sovereign, just in habit, not in act. How do you, how do you then figure out who's, who's who? Who are the sovereigns and who are the subjects here? And if you're listening to this and you're like, what is the point of this? This is to set up what is the real like text, the second treatise of government, where John Locke is just opposing the idea of monarchy and he's opposing the idea of justifying the divine right of kings and using Filmer, who's like the most egregious example of it. Although I think that Locke could have focused on a better figure, could have critiqued Hobbes really well just a few years before. Maybe, maybe he didn't, was scared to, I don't know. But he chose Filmer, low-hanging fruit, to just like make this point to, to justify his view of liberty. So Locke clarifies really though in the Bible that God grants Adam sovereignty over animals, over irrational creatures, made before humans on the fifth day. So Adam's rule does not extend to humans as per God's teaching or God's word. Adam only has command over all of those creatures made before humans. But we're also forgetting someone here that Eve was there as well. And God was saying this to Eve as well, that Eve had the same power over everything else, all the animals uh, around. And then he would go on to say that to Noah as well. So this isn't reserved for Adam. So again, Locke is like, Filmer, what are you talking about? And God's intent here was not to have people just be arbitrarily subject to rule, where they just need to submit to authority. God sends out people to flourish, to be happy, to do things with one another, not to just, you know, follow the rules of some divine order. So Filmer also ignores how Adam lived a garbage life after leaving the Garden of Eden, like hardly a life of a king. So what kind of life is it even to live a life of royalty or of, of sovereignty as Filmer is like celebrating here? Now, as further evidence, Filmer suggests or cites God's proclamation that men should control their wives to say that men, or to point to the fact that men have natural dominion or control over women. Now, Locke, Locke was a sexist dude. It'll become clear as we go through this, like, clearly. But he sees this as wrong, obviously, because it would mean that there are as many monarchs as there are husbands, which isn't the case. And here, Filmer is conflating sexist rule with monarchy. 
and using examples of like parental control of men's violence against women and sexism against women as justification for the existence of the divine right of kings of kings and of sovereignty which Locke is not buying because it doesn't follow that would mean all men would be sovereigns but they aren't sovereignty is something entirely different so Locke is simply Locke just says this is evidence that men can control their wives and not all of society which Locke is cool with like he doesn't mind controlling wives of course so you know this isn't like a radical thing he's not opposing patriarchy here but he's opposing Filmer's idea about the divine right of kings now as for children Locke asks if fathers really have the authority over children as Filmer suggests and Locke does not think so obviously uh, obviously not because it's not like we crafted the human and sculpted them like a painting when we make a child they do not belong to us like an object that we make like they are their own thing not even Frankenstein had like power over his creature right like these people people that are made through procreation are their own people with feelings with ideas with experiences and it's wrong to impart upon them or to suggest that they must submit to the rule of the person that created them now we put a little asterisk here because later it'll become apparent that Locke sees paternal authority the rule of parents by both uh, men and women within the heterosexual matrix as being important like he's not he's not downplaying that but he doesn't he's like you can't just extract from this some general principle about ruling others so even if we completely crafted children though like we decided what they looked like like um is that in Gattaca the movie I think that's in Gattaca where that happens uh, but even if we completely crafted them the equal power and authority should be recognized among both men and women like no matter what between both father and mother so he's wrong in this respect according to Locke by locating the power purely within the father and he does this because he desperately wants to believe that there's such a thing as that single sovereign figure the monarch the divine right of kings because right off the bat here we're seeing that that's not actually how the world works in terms of parents and children because power is divided which he doesn't want to admit because if he did he would have to admit that then sovereignty can be divided which he doesn't want because that'd be chaos for him that wouldn't that wouldn't work and we see it in the animal kingdom that like uh, the female has just as much control and power over the children as the male in fact in a lot of cases way more and we can't deny the fact as well that within the animal kingdom among humans parents die for their children like parents don't just rule their children to like control them and to extract like wealth and power from them parents any kind of control that they exert over children is for their betterment and this will be Locke's point that like parents are you know they're just subject to their children in a sense parents work to the bone to raise their children to protect their children because they worship their children it's almost like the children are the real kings in this dynamic all this still just to oppose Filmer in every way 
Now, of course, in addition to just like sexism, Filmer is clearly racist and he uses the example, he points to indigenous people, whatever like group, he just homogenizes all non-Europeans as just like indigenous um, people who he thinks are, are uh, undeveloped compared to Europeans and they don't treat their children well. And so this is evidence that they are not equipped to actually have sovereignty because they don't know how to properly like raise children in terms of order to establish kingdoms ruled by sovereigns, ruled by kings, and that they really need like the Bible to fix them. And Locke is like, well, if you say that, then then we have to follow what other things the Bible is okay with. Like the Bible is okay with incest, sodomy, adultery. Like all of this is found among animals within the Bible, among people within the Bible. Like it's right after Sodom and Gomorrah, like Lot runs away from Sodom and Gomorrah with his two daughters and his two daughters get him drunk and then have sex with him. And it's like, what? I, and this is, and God is cool with this. Like, excuse me, what are you talking about? This is, this is wild. So Filmer's idea that the natural authority of fathers over their children as justification for sovereignty for monarchical rule is untenable. Like it's not something we can really abide by because it would then suggest that all fathers are subordinates alongside their children, where all fathers are subordinate to their own fathers who are subordinate to their fathers. And you just have this endless chain of subordination where there are no rulers. So his idea is absurd because it, it suggests that uh, all fathers are both masters and servants to their children and to their fathers, which doesn't make any sense. Like, and this is no template then to actually understand how sovereignty works, how rule works. So if power is possessed by those who beget children, who, those who have children, then Filmer has no basis to say that men are naturally more prone to rule than the mothers of their children. So moreover, how can we explain how the eldest son has command over the youngest son in the way the eldest is assumed to be the heir of the property or of property in the Bible and according to Filmer. So according to Filmer, if you have uh, many children, many sons, the eldest has the most power. And it's like, wait, what? Dude, what are you talking about? Like, you're just adding new stuff into the mix, like willy-nilly. You're making up rules to the game that we're playing as we're playing it. Just, it doesn't make sense. Now, Locke is clear that the Bible doesn't actually suggest that the eldest can command the youngest. There are many instances where the opposite is really the case, but Filmer just ignores all of that. And does this mean then that the eldest son rules over the youngest without being his father? How does that work then? Because I thought it was the father that had this power. How come suddenly the son can rule over other sons? So we also find in the Bible and in Filmer's ideas, his wacky ideas, wacky old Filmer, an acknowledgement of the power of property. And this will be central to the second treatise for Locke. So at best, Filmer is confused about the distinction between power, property, and about sovereign rule and all that. Filmer does everything he can to naturalize monarchical power while ignoring other kinds of government 
other kinds of ways of existing in the world and people's attachment to land and labor and liberty. God, I love alliteration. Land, labor, and liberty. Wow. Locke obviously <laughs> thinks that parents have some power over their children, as I suggested before. Like, they, they have to. They, you know, the parents will pull the child's arm out of, like, harm's way. Because the kids don't know things. We, you know, as a species, we suck. Like, as babies, we're useless. We need parental guidance until we're, like, 10 years old before we're even, uh, like, able to think for ourselves. Like, we, or maybe that's just me. I was, I didn't, I wasn't the smartest little kid. But in any case, we, we suck. We need constant protection. So there is something to be said about the way that parents rule over their kids. But like I said before, it's done out of like love and care, not desiring to rule over them. Now with this, Locke, or Locke uses this idea to justify the existence of inheritance, where inheritance for Locke is totally good. It's totally good to pass things on to your children. And it's because of this fundamental dynamic of caring for children that is special. It's unique to the ability to give birth, you know, to have children, apparently, according to Locke. And this justifies giving inheritance. Inherit inheritance is like, like nepotism 101. You know, you know, how many rich people are out there don't, didn't des don't deserve it. They didn't earn what they have, but they just have it because their parents were rich. Like, what? I think it was Durkheim. It may not have been, but I think it was Durkheim who thought that a really radical solution to many of the world's inequalities would be to get rid of inheritance or to like tax it like absolute like so much because you know we're in america you have to earn what you make you can't just you don't just get a free lunch you don't get your parents's free lunch so for Locke, inheritance is justified in natural law from god who gave all humans command over the earth and creatures and this is what we actually find according to Locke. When Adam leaves the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, or leaves, they're cast out, where they're told, this land is yours, the animals are yours, go and flourish and be happy as best as you can in this desolate wasteland. So the role of good government, and here he's just teasing us, and we'll, when we get into the second treatise next week, we'll get, all, we'll get into it. The role of good government is to permit and facilitate this for all people, being able to live in freedom on the land. That is the primary goal of government, not to rule, not to uh, exert arbitrary authority over people, but to permit people to live in liberty and safety. Now, if you remember earlier, uh, it was clear that Filmer thought that all of Adam's descendants were the rightful heirs to his power. And like, so therefore, every single one of Adam's descendants is like a, a king or queen. And any person who is a king or queen must have a, a, a direct lineage to Adam. Don't we all have a direct lineage to Adam, though? I mean, if you follow the Bible, if you believe the Bible. Uh, like, can shouldn't we all be kings then? Like, how can we actually tell who are the rightful heirs to this and who aren't? None of us are not Adam's descendants. So, I mean, and it's it's just fun to read this because Locke is just, is really funny about it and just tearing Filmer apart. But, you know, it, it, probably to you, it feels like low-hanging fruit. Like, what's the point? But like I said, it, it this is just preamble before the real meat and potatoes in the next, 
episode in the second treatise. But just to conclude the last point here, even in the Bible, kings are chosen somewhat spontaneously by God. You know, you have Moses and Saul and Saul, David, even Adam, Noah, like these, these, these were like these flare-ups of people who had a divine connection to God or connection to God. So it happens almost spontaneously by God's command, not because they're someone's children. Like they didn't, they didn't earn that because they're the descendants of Adam. So how else can we explain the Israelites not having a king until Saul or like, you know, Moses is Moses freeing them and then eventually getting to Saul uh, only 3000 years ago. Like if we look at the entire history of humankind, according to the Bible, a king only emerged like 3,000 years ago with Saul. And so <laughs> that begs the question, how natural are these things called kings, the divine right of kings? Does the Bible actually dictate it? Why were none of Adam's other descendants kings? But yeah, that, that'll wrap up the first treatise of government. And next time we're going to start the real, <laughs> real important text, the second treatise of government, probably the one you have to read if you're in school. Or if you're just a curious person, you're very interested in John Locke, I hope I'll be able to do it justice. And yeah, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends, let me know if I got anything wrong or excluded anything. I'd really love to hear about it. And yeah, on that note, take care.